I pray, Father, for gospel movements to flourish there. Um, we thank you, Father, for where your church is growing. We thank you, Father, where it is strong. And yet we know, uh, we're told it is still small, the number of people in this once historically Christian nation who actually profess faith in Jesus Christ in any meaningful way is tiny. We pray that they would be bold to proclaim their faith, to call their fellow citizens and residents to repentance and new hope and new life in Christ. We pray for new churches to continue to be planted and launched in new communities and new cities. And we pray for the training of leaders and pastors to serve in those churches. We pray, Father, for the uh, refugees that have continued to flee to Austria uh, since World War II, have fled uh, since the advent of communism, and have fled now in recent years some of the strife in the Middle East. We thank you, God, that Austria has been a place of respite, we pray that it would be a place that is safe for gospel proclamation for those people. We pray in particular this morning for the Afghans who have settled in Austria and are functionally without any gospel witness. Um, of no known Christians among that number of refugees and so we pray that Austrian citizens would, who believe in Jesus Christ would be faithful to bring the good news as they help them to assimilate to a new culture, that they would also learn to assimilate to a heavenly culture that has much more importance and significance. Father, we pray, um, cognizant as we are of the, the advent of, of sports betting now in Ohio, and we enter into the season of, of basketball playoffs and hockey playoffs and, and, uh, and uh, college basketball playoffs, and, and there's just this fervor for betting on things. And the cruelty of false hope that gambling gives to those who are most desperate. And so we pray, Father, um, for those ministries uh, in our community that are seeking to aid those who are struggling with addictions of all sorts, uh, for those uh, chapters of Reformers Unanimous and Celebrate Recovery, um, and other ministries that simply informally uh, help those who are recovering um, from addictions of various sorts. We pray for uh, their wisdom in dealing with this new challenge, this, this new onslaught of sin. 
We pray for wisdom for your churches here in Ohio, in Northeast Ohio in particular, with the proximity of the casino. That we would be able to be refuges from the corruption of that industry and help us to help those who feel so helpless that that is hope or life or fun or goodness instead of darkness and pain and loss. Father, we pray uh, for your word to flourish in our hearts this morning. And may it flourish from our hearts to our community, even as we leave here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, after uh, Zach's excellent sermon last week from uh, John 4, which did get recorded, I want to be clear on that. It's been a little bit of a, a problem. When Zach preaches, things don't go right. We did have problems, um, but it did get recorded. It just it was hidden live, but it's there. So if you didn't hear it, you can get it. So go back, and, and if you weren't here for whatever reason, it's there now. Please go back and hear it. Zach did a great job. Um, but we are back in 1 Samuel this morning. Um, so if you would, turn with me to 1 Samuel 23, or you can click swipe, tap, um, do whatever you do to turn in your Bible. Follow along with me. Uh, make sure what I'm saying is in the text. Make sure what I'm saying makes sense. Um, we want to be controlled by the text of Scripture as we make our way through the book of 1 Samuel this spring. Um, we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of this passage, and then we're going to dig in. Now, they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your, sure, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy this city on my account. 
Will the men of Kalos surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Kalah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kalah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kalah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. What is the most dangerous situation you've ever been in? Maybe you immediately think of mortal danger, but, but not all dangers are life and death. Uh, maybe it was an emotional danger or a, a psychological danger. Maybe it was a financial danger or a relational danger. But in some sphere of your life, you faced what Merriam-Webster defines as exposure to liability, to injury, pain, harm, or loss. What was the time when that exposure was at its highest, when what you had to lose was at its greatest extent? What was the most dangerous situation you've ever been in? The thing about danger is we don't, we don't appraise it well, do we? On a pure emotional level, on a pure human level, the most dangerous situation I was ever in was quite probably the time I was, I don't know, 16, 17, and, and, and staring down the barrel of a gun in a narrow residential hallway in a sleepy middle-class neighborhood. Was I in danger? I, I don't know. I, I didn't know. I don't know to this day if that gun was loaded. I don't even know if the person pointing at me knew if it was loaded or not. Maybe he knew. Maybe if I had a chance to ask him, he'd laugh and say, there was no danger at all. That gun was not loaded, and he was just trying to act tough. We often perceive danger through our emotions, and we often don't process it through the facts. And sometimes that's because we don't have the facts. Sometimes that's because in our fear, we struggle to see the facts straight. Getting the facts straight is especially important when we're torn between two perceived dangers. Or worse, what if what's dangerous seems safe? And what if what feels safe is actually what's dangerous? In our passage of Scripture this morning, David is thrust into, by what all accounts, seems like dangerous situations. But the dangers of men are entirely safe when we are centered in God's will. The dangers of men are entirely safe when we are centered in God's will. And we're going to see that through David's response to two 
threats he faces, and then I want to put some application on that. So we're going to look at two threats David faces, and then we're going to kind of to try to establish this principle, and then we're going to apply it. Two weeks ago, um, we were in 1 Samuel 22, and we saw how we might respond faithfully, or not, in the face of terrible tragedy and evil, uh, as King Saul attempted to execute the entire line of priests in Israel. And the week before that, we saw in chapters 21 and part of 22, how, how David seemed to temporarily forget God's promises and, and needed to be called back to them. And both of those events set the stage for what we're reading here in the beginning of chapter 23. David had tried to flee to the Philistine territory. He had tried to hide in a cave. He had tried to seek refuge in the kingdom of Moab, all to escape the threat of King Saul. But he was forgetting that God had promised to establish him as king. And if God's word was good and it was good, then Saul couldn't have harmed him in any real or permanent sense until God's plans came to fruition. God was not going to be a liar. And eventually a prophet named Gad told David he needed to return to Israel. He needed to be in God's territory, to the land of Judah. So David obeyed God and went with his small army of about 400 men and encamped in the forest of Hereth. And that was pretty far south in the territory actually controlled by the tribe of Judah at the time. And it's in that forest that we read here this morning, they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. Now, Calah was a city just a little bit to the west, closer to the border of Philistine territory. The Philistines mostly hung out by the Mediterranean Sea. And the threshing floor, well, that's the place where the farmers would thresh their grain. They would, ha they would have an area, maybe just outside the city, uh, where they would toss the grain in the air, and allowed the wind to blow the lighter chaff away, the part that's not edible or useful, and allow the heavier grain to fall to the ground. So they would fall onto what they called the threshing floor. So that was how they prepared it for storage and for use. And so because they were already doing that there, it was common uh, at the time to have storage on site at the threshing floor. Why move it twice? And so these Philistines were basically raiding the city for its food and for its crops. It's hard to overstate the, the threat here. Although the Philistines might not have been interested in conquest, by taking all the grain, they were threatening to remove the primary food source for the people. Bread and grain was what people ate. There were no delivery trucks bringing people more food tomorrow. The Dollar General, the Aldi were not getting resupplied. And meat was like a luxury item in that day. Bread, grain, that was the everyday staple. Give us this day our daily bread, not our 
daily beef. So this could mean starvation and illness and death slowly over a long period of time. It would be ugly. And so the Israelites' enemies are attacking God's people at Keilah. And David is just a few miles away from Keilah with a small army. But David is a fugitive in Israel. He's a wanted man. On the other hand, he's the one that God has called to be king. God's anointed one, a judge, a deliverer of God's people. And there were people in need, God's people, David's people. He was called to be a protector of God's people. And yet, he was weak. He was on the run. He was in a precarious position. What would you do? Well, here's what it says David did. It says David inquired of the Lord. That means one way or another he sought God's will. We aren't sure how he did this. Maybe he spoke to the same prophet, Gad, he spoke to before. Maybe he prayed and, and God spoke to him. We know David himself was a prophet. We don't know. It doesn't say it doesn't matter. What matters is his intention. He wanted to know what God wanted. And God's answer was direct. Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Now that idea didn't go over super well with David's men. They said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? So you might recall David's men were fugitives also. They were outcasts who had been marginalized or they were in deep debt, probably in ways that were unfair or unscrupulous. They were likely scared for their lives by even being in the same country as the reach of King Saul. But David was suggesting going to attack their mortal enemies, the Philistines. So David takes their concern under advisement. Maybe he misunderstood God. Maybe he heard God wrong. It is a risky move. It's a dangerous move on the face of it to go to Keilah and attack a much stronger adversary. What if the entire Philistine nation were to retaliate. They'd done that before. We've seen that in 1 Samuel before. And so David inquired of God again. And God assured David that he would give him victory at Keilah. So they go. Apparently David's men trust him, even if they don't like it. And they're victorious. They rescue Keilah. They save the city. They even walk away with some of the cattle of the Philistines that they had brought to the city. Now, things weren't good in the forest. That's where they were. They were in the forest of Hareth. They were homeless. They were isolated. They were on the fringes of society. But they probably felt relatively safe. They were homeless but they were with their countrymen and they were with their kinsmen. They were isolated, but they were to some degree hidden and off the grid, hidden from King Saul. There was safety in their obscurity. 
But God said go to the city, to a place where they would no doubt be exposed and in the open and forced to fight against the most fearsome enemy of their day. An enemy that was repeatedly attacking them and counterattacking them throughout this period of history. That sounds a lot more dangerous, doesn't it? Everything about it screams risky, going from obscurity to light, from woodland tranquility to urban battle, from being at rest to being at war. But was it dangerous? It wasn't, was it? It wasn't dangerous. It seemed dangerous. It felt dangerous. Understandable feelings. But the facts were that God had promised victory. The facts were that God was with them. God desired David to go and fight. And if he stayed in God's will, he would be as safe as he needed to be. The dangers of men are entirely safe when we're centered in God's will. Now there's a little interlude in this passage. Some take it as almost a parenthetical note. And it's there in verse 6. In verse 6 it says, When Abiathar, the son of Himelech, had fled to David in Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. If you weren't here a couple weeks ago, or if you didn't read along, who is Abiathar? Well, Abiathar is, was the son of the high priest. When King Saul decided to execute all the priests in chapter two or chapter 22, Abiathar was the only one who escaped. And at the end of that chapter, the text simply says that he fled to David when Saul committed that atrocity. And what this little sentence in verse 6 tells us is something of a cruel and sickening and, and painful irony. If Abiathar fled to David only after David saved Kelah, it meant that Saul was killing God's people at the same time David was trying to save God's people. And the other important piece of this note is the fact that he was able to bring an ephod with him. I'll say more on that in a second. For now, the author, I think, just wants to note it because this is when Abiathar came. So just, he came at that point, the author wants to note it, and you're going to need to know that information later. But for now, let's turn to the second threat that David faced. The second threat comes when Saul heard that David had gone to Calah. We don't know how Saul heard about that, but probably inevitable that the king is going to hear that one of his cities was engaged in battle with the Philistines. And then that city was rescued by one of his former top soldiers. Now Saul, for his part, thinks this is good news. 
Not just good news, great news. Not just great news. He thinks this is God's hand. He thinks this is God's work. He thinks God is on his side. Look at verse 7. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. In the ancient world, most settlements were, were open, small towns, and the more important cities had walls that could be shut up with large gates, and those gates could be locked with bars of wood or metal. Now, most of those would hardly be cities by our standards today. Like Cleveland would be considered a massive city, like world-class city in that day and age. I mean, a, a very large city would be 10,000 people. That would be an enormous city in most places at the time. So you still have to think relatively small, but it's still the, the, the important settlements would have these walls, they have gates, and you could lock these cities up. And that provided your community with protection from invaders, uh, from pillagers, from raiders, from criminals of all different sorts. Uh, attacking a walled city could be done, but it was a long and costly endeavor. But for Saul, who is looking for just one man, it meant that he had David cornered. He had him trapped. And King Saul has, has shown himself to be almost maniacal in his pursuit of David. So even if getting David out of Keilah is a protracted affair, he probably doesn't care. What matters is he knows where David is and he knows how to get him. But can we pause for a moment on the fact that Saul thinks that this set of circumstances is from God. Now, it might seem really easy to mock him. Look how easy it is for evil people to, to twist what is good. Saul is nuts. He's corrupt. He's wicked. But you know what I've noticed in my short 24 years on this earth? Uh, if wishful thinking, if people have even the slightest belief in God, like non-atheists, right, they have a tendency to call almost anything that seems positive as God at work in their lives. It's a God thing. It's a blessing. God did it, they say. And I often think to myself, you know, they have really very little reason to have confidence in that statement. And sometimes it seems really clear that they don't see how wrong they are. That what they're happy about is not a blessing at all and is not likely to turn out the way they think it is at all. But they've made up their mind that it's good for them. It's like we see the, 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 a shiny silver dollar on the sidewalk and we think it's our day 
And God is really looking out for us, only it's like we don't see, like sort of in the old, old cartoon, that uh, hanging over that silver dollar is the proverbial piano being lowered from the apartment building on this very worn and splintered rope that's going to just crash down on our heads. We don't see the danger inherent in what we have already decided is the God thing or the blessing. We're just myopic. We are nearsighted. We are closed-minded and so focused on ourselves. It's, it's, it's like the person who buys a lottery ticket and happens to win $100 and thinks that God has truly blessed them, not realizing that they've just fed an addiction and then the next month they'll be just as much in poverty as they were this month. Nothing changed. In fact, they might be in worse shape if they keep going back to the false hope of gambling. Where is the blessing? And it leads me to think that many of us, if not all of us, can be really tempted to see what is evil and call it good. We're so invested in what's in it for me that we think God is primarily concerned about fulfilling my wishes and making my life good or that he should be invested in that. It's not necessarily a blessing to get what you want. It's not necessarily a blessing. But it's always a blessing to be in God's will. And that's where Saul fails. Because how does Saul figure out God's will? He looks at his circumstances. And since the circumstances look good, he gathers his entire army to hunt down David at Keilah. In verse 9, we read David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. That's been pretty obvious for a while. But based on the next few verses, it seems like also he's heard at least a rumor that Saul is coming this way. Saul's amassing a huge army, and it seems like even back in the pre-internet days, pre-telephone days, pre-telegram days, an army of that size would probably be difficult to keep completely silent. David's heard something. But David's response stands in stark contrast to Saul's. Saul discerns God's will by looking at his circumstances, what feels like it's going to be good or bad in his life. But David asks God himself. David calls Abiathar, the last remaining priest, to bring the ephod. Now, the ephod was, was a garment. It was worn by the high priest, and it was attached to a breastpiece that held two stones called the Urim and the Thummim. And those were used to discern God's will. And, and we don't we don't know how they were used. The Bible never describes how they were used, and they've been lost and destroyed now with the temple being gone for thousands of years. But scholars guessed it was a bit like casting lots, but we, we just don't know. Uh, but however they did it, it, it meant that the person had to go to the high priest 
for the consultation. And the high priest carried those stones into the holiest place in God's sanctuary. So symbolically into the very presence of God. So that we're saying this decision is coming from on high. It's coming from God himself. And it would make sense that Abiathar, as the new high priest, since he's the only priest, he's now the high priest, would have that with the ephod that he brought down. And it would make sense that if that was in Calah, David would prefer to seek God's will through the means that God had provided to Moses so many years ago. And so David has two questions for God. Will Kayla hand him over to Saul? And will Saul come down looking for him? God says, Saul will come down. So David asks again, will the men of Kayla surrender me and my men to Saul? They will, God says. Why would they do that? Let's acknowledge just how disloyal that must have felt to David and to his men. They just risked their lives to to save this city, to save their food and and their security. Probably hundreds of lives saved in the long term. And they're hearing from God, pretty good source, that these men, the leaders of the city, would just hand them over. But if Saul's bringing a full army down to that city, it can only mean one thing, and that's siege warfare. We've mentioned this before. Um, Siege warfare was cruel, and it was devastating. Essentially, Saul would be coming down to the walled city and probably demanding that they turn David over. And as long as they didn't turn David over, Saul would probably surround the city and prevent any goods and services like crops and animals from the surrounding fields from getting in. And slowly, over time, depending on how much they had stored up inside that wall, they would run out of food. They'd become more and more desperate. They might turn on each other. They'd get sick. Some would starve to death. If they didn't surrender, Saul could wait until they were too weak to carry on and then break in and kill whomever he wanted in their weak and frail state. It was a particularly cruel and yet common and understood method of warfare in the day. And Saul has nothing but time. It was an expensive way to do war. You had to put up an army and feed an army outside of the city for months at a time. But Saul has nothing but time because nothing is more important to him than David's death. So for the people of Keilah, surrendering David would have been a matter of life and death. And they'd already been through one brutal skirmish with their food supply threatened, and they probably didn't have it in them to do it again. Doesn't make it right. It is, it was what it was. 
That said, from a human point of view, from a human point of view, I mean, a priest has said that God said that these people's lives you just saved are going to turn you over. That, that's what David's going on here, right? The priest said that God said that the men whose lives you just saved, the city whose lives you just saved, are going to hand you over to your enemy. And yet from a human point of view, there was a, there was a reason people built walled cities for protection. Hiding out in a fortified city with people who arguably owed you their very lives and should be highly loyal, probably felt like the safest situation to David and his men. Probably the safest they had felt in a long time. Yes, siege warfare was bad. It was real and it was brutal. There were defenses against it. And at the end of the day, would you rather be in a walled city or an unguarded forest? In fact, for most of human history, and this is probably actually still true for most of the world today, it's not the rural areas that are considered safe, but the cities that are considered safe. Because the cities are a place where there is safety, where there's justice, where there are police forces and lawmen and, and things like that. The countryside is where bandits and villains can run free. For David and his men, from a human perspective, leaving the city was a dangerous move. But they left. And so verse 13 reads, Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. Now, previously, David had an army of about 400 men. So maybe not everyone in Keilah was disloyal. Because somewhere between the forests of Hereth and Kalah, he picked up 200 more soldiers. So whatever else happens, David is leaving Kalah stronger than he arrived. But they went wherever they could go. Not a resounding endorsement. Chapters 21 and 22 were filled with specific place names that David conscientiously traveled to out of his own strategic thinking, the, the cave at Adullam and uh, Gath of the Philistines and the, the fortress in Moab. But now following only God, he simply went wherever he could go. And where they could go was the strongholds of the wilderness of Ziph, which sounds a lot better in Bible language than what it, probably was. Um, the wilderness of Ziph is part of what we would call today the Judean desert. It was high, rocky terrain cut up by deep, dried up riverbeds. And the strongholds, these are not fortresses, they're probably natural formations on higher elevations that happen to provide some natural protection from would-be attackers as well as the all-important high ground. But Saul called off the attack on Kalah. So in a way, David had saved it twice. He saved it once from enemies, 
and a second time from its leaders having to make a terrible moral decision. And even though Saul called off the attack, he continued to look for David, but he couldn't find him in this remote desert, an area that is still largely unpopulated in 2023. And so for almost the exact opposite reason as before, David went into what must felt, have felt like a much worse situation, a much more dangerous situation, exposed to his enemy, no walled protection, exposed to elements in a rocky desert. But David didn't wake up feeling dangerous. He woke up feeling safe because the dangers of men are entirely safe when we are centered in God's will. There's a famous saying that the safest place is in the center of God's will. Do you know where they came from? Do you know who said that? Those words were, were, were written or spoken by uh, Corey Tenboom, a, a Dutch Christian watchmaker. She and her family became part of the underground movement to assist Jews when Nazis invaded the Netherlands, putting her life and her lifestyle at constant risk. Tuesday will mark the 79th anniversary of her family being ratted out. And she and about 30 others, including her sister and her father, were arrested by the Gestapo. And Though most of them were released, her close family were not, and uh, 10 days later, her father died. She and her sister were sent to concentration camps, eventually in Germany, where they led worship services and, and Bible studies, through which many were converted to Christianity. Unfortunately, her sister's health failed, and by the end of that year, her sister was dead. And 12 days later, uh, Cory ten Baum was released. It was a clerical error. It was a mistake. The Germans did not intend to release her. All the rest of the women in her group were sent to the gas chambers. She returned to the Netherlands, though. I believe, though, that the sister ten Baum was, was right. The safest place is in the center of God's will. And I believe our passage points us that way. But that doesn't mean that everything will be delightful. That doesn't mean that everything will be easy. That doesn't mean everything will feel good. Sometimes the safest things are the hardest things and the scariest things and the things that everyday, ordinary, sane people will tell you are the most dangerous. David's little army was overmatched and exposed and yet fought a physical war against the Philistines, sacrificing the anonymity of the forest in the process. And just like that, they were discovered by King Saul, who came for them. And, and the people they helped were ready to turn on them. And so they fled the comfort of the city for the cruel and craggy desert. David's own men at one point questioned the wisdom of his plans. This was not a comfortable or easy existence. It was not a soothing existence, but it was the safest possible existence because they were following the will of God. The 
Now, you might have a couple questions. You might wonder then, well, how do I know God's will? And once I know it, how do I do it? How do I live God's will? Those are good questions. Let's try to tackle those. Have you ever been in a relationship, uh, uh, you know, the man or woman, and you, you felt lost or confused about what they wanted? So, you know, you read a magazine or, or, or a blog or a book, or you watch a YouTube video or dating advice from TikTok or some on communication tips in a relationship. Well, even if you won't admit that, Maybe you'll admit this. I bet at some point, if you're honest, you based how strong you thought that relationship was based on how you felt about that relationship. And so if you were unsure about what they wanted, you guessed that if they responded positively to what you said or what you did, they were good with you, with the relationship, with everything. And if they responded negatively, they weren't good with something. The danger there and maybe some of you felt, have felt this, is that you're always trying to read the tea leaves to figure out how they feel about you today. Always a little on edge, a little, he's a little bit unsure, never quite steady. Was that a happy smile or a polite smile? Did they laugh because they thought the joke was funny or did they laugh because they thought the joke was stupid? You're always just kind of trying to figure out where you stand. But in all those things, what's missing didn't ask them how they felt. You didn't go to the source. And I think we're a lot like that with God. We go on our feelings. We try to read the signs and we try to figure out what God wants from us and what he wants us to do. But we often don't do the obvious thing of asking him, of going to the source. And that's what separated David and Saul. Saul tried to read the tea leaves. He tried to discern the signs and the circumstances. David went directly to God. God has told us what he wants from us. He makes his will pretty extremely clear in the big things. And he does give us direction how to find clarity in in the little things. If we just go to the source. There's this book. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's the words of God. It's mediated through human authors in different genre. Some letters, some poems, some songs, some history, some apocalyptic, even some genealogy. 66 books, all designed to reveal God to us and in that, show us our real selves. And, you know, in in these pages, there are some real, obvious will of God things in there. I mean, like, painfully obvious will of God things. Like 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 through 18. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Or, same book, uh, chapter earlier. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Or 1 Peter chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I mean, those are just too obvious, right? 
pray, be holy, honor governments and leaders as far as you're able to under God. We think sometimes God's will is a mystery, and sometimes God just, just flatly says, here's my will for your life. And then there's those, those, those sort of timeless commands. Some of them we love, do not murder, sure. Some of them not so much, do not commit adultery. But God's will isn't that secretive, is it? It's not. And look, I know. I know that you're wondering about the hard cases. You're wondering about whether to stay in the forest of Hereth or go save the citizens of Calah from the Philistines, right? But I feel like I often hear people worried about the complex cases. What is God's will? Who aren't doing all that much to focus on the basics. It's a, it's a bit like worrying about what you're going to do in calculus when you're still struggling to do multiplication and division. If you're worried about God's will for your future career path when you're spending all your night on porn. If you're fretting about God's will for your romantic life when you're squandering all your wealth on trivial things that will pass away. If you're staying up thinking about God's will for where you should send your kid to school when you're harboring enmity and a lack of forgiveness in your heart toward everyone who has wronged you. Do the basics. Do the basics. If you're a Christian, and I'm speaking to Christians here, you can do this if you're not a Christian too, but let me just suggest you, you pick up this book, get on a plan, get on a plan to read this book. I mean, pick up this book, whatever you need to do. Absorb it, know it, love it, hear it. Let it challenge you. Let it correct you. It's God correcting you. If there's something you don't understand, you, you can ask someone, but don't let the things you don't understand be an excuse for you not doing the things you do understand. Showing love and compassion and mercy, doing justice, treating others with equity, walking in righteousness and personal holiness, keeping yourself pure by the power of God's Spirit. So we have the Spirit, and, we, and we, we have the Spirit, and we have the Spirit in a much more powerful and present way than David ever did. He's an abiding helper and teacher and guide sent by Jesus to make him more like him. And a funny thing happens along the way. If you look at Romans 12, uh, verses 1 through 2, famous passage, is a favorite of mine, uh, Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I can't break that down in as much depth as it deserves here one day. That, that's, that will be a, a sermon. 
But here's the gist. As we live our lives sacrificially before God and allow our minds to be transformed from the world's way of thinking, like Saul, to God's way of thinking by seeking him out, God's will, which is good and acceptable and perfect, starts to become more and more clear to us. It's, it's, it's like a snowball, like, like so many things in life. Like, like when we begin to start losing weight, which I need to get back to, it, it, it doesn't seem clear at first how we're going to get there, but we keep going and going, and eventually we look up and a lot has changed. And things that seemed impossible or unclear before now start to seem possible and start to seem clear. And, and, and we follow God more closely the more we distance ourselves from the world, we become more conformed to his ways. And the more we do that, the more we snowball into understanding his ways. Financial security doesn't come in a day. Weight loss doesn't come in a day. Education doesn't come in a day. Holiness and perf- perfect understanding of God's will doesn't come in a day. But go to the source. Start doing the basics. You do your times tables and then you kind of start doing them by rote and then you kind of start doing some more advanced geometry and algebra and then it's trick you know start with the basics do the basics fall in love with the basics of god and be surprised at how much more starts to build on that Then briefly, because I'm aware of the time. How do we do God's will? Because there is a difference between knowing God's will and doing God's will, isn't there? Sometimes we know the right thing to do, but doing it seems so hard. And here's the answer. And the answer is the same no matter who you are. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure if you're a Christian, the answer is the same. Let me answer it by pointing to something that Jesus said was what God wanted. We might then say, if this is what God wants, it is, in a sense, God's will. God's word is filled with all sort of works that we're commanded to do. And those are part of God's will for us. And so it stands to reason someone might ask, well, okay, what must I do to be right with God? What works do I have to do to be right with God. If I want to get into heaven, I don't want to go to hell. What is the bare minimum? Someone asked Jesus that once. Actually, several people. It's recorded in John chapter 6. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And that's what many of us want to know, isn't it? At the root, we want to know, what do I have to do to be A-OK with God? Here's Jesus' response. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus was speaking of himself. He was the one God had sent. His audience understood that. The conversation continued from that point. I encourage you to read it, John chapter 6. But this is the work of God, to believe in Jesus. Consider that your first duty. So if you have absolutely no idea where to begin with following God's will, that's the beginning. Believe in Jesus. Jesus was effectively saying, if you want to be right with God, you must place your faith in me. You must trust me. And that's a pretty bold statement, but there's a reason that Christianity is about Jesus Christ. 
Why did he say that? Well, there's a lot that we could unpack there. And to do it justice, to, to really understand it, I'd love just to sit down with you over coffee or lunch because I want to answer any questions that you have. I want to go slow. But here's the gist of it. He was perfect when we weren't perfect. And God can take his perfections and put them on our account, on our ledgers. And so he can make our balances whole. He can take our negative balances and he can bring them up to even. He offers to pay off the debt of our mistakes, our evil, our falling short of God's standards. All the things that we've done that make us wonder, what must I do? What's the bare minimum I must do to be right with God because I know I've not done the maximum. And that starts with faith. You can be right with God through Jesus. If that sounds interesting, let's talk. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. And Christians keep living by faith. And that's how we live out God's will. We live by faith. We do what's hard and difficult and outwardly scary because we trust what God says more than we, we trust with our eyes. We trust what God has promised more than the anxiety beating in our chest. We trust God's goodness more than we trust our past experiences and our expertise and our cunning and our intelligence. And we trust God's plan more than we rely on any human being's platitudes or prognostications or pleasures or pleasantries. We trust. As the Apostle Paul wrote, we walk by faith, not by sight. And when we live like that, friends may call you crazy. Relatives may call you reckless. And there may be many scary things ahead of you. but the dangers of men are entirely safe when we are centered in God's will. Let's pray. Father God, by your spirit, would you instill in us the confidence that we are at our most safe when we are centered in your will. The dangers outside that are so much greater. And that our wisdom is foolishness compared to you. And by your spirit, would you build us into people who trust you more and more deeply, that we would truly walk by faith and not by sight each and every day. And with those who have yet to take that step of faith, to begin to understand what it means to live a life without the fear of man and the fear of this world and the fear of the things out there, would you move in them by your Spirit to seek Christ today. It's in his name we pray. Amen.